Welcome to episode 7b of Matthewlinity, Critical Study of Matthew and Masculinity, the series in which I'll be navigating the world of Matthewian research, identifying assumptions, connecting old and new interpretations, including questions and perspectives previously overlooked or undervalued. There's a whole world of research that awaits. Are you ready? In this episode, episode 7b, I'll be completing the structural analysis which I began last time in episode 7a, and that is the final piece of the concentric structure in verses 18 to 25. The middle piece is verse 22, so I'll be looking at verse 22. And how are we supposed to understand what it's talking about when it suddenly says it's all happened? Previously, the angel has just said this will happen and this will happen, and then verse 22 says this has all happened. What is it talking about? Why is there a sudden shift? What is the thing that has just happened? I'll begin once again by reading aloud the portion of text. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. The progeneration of the Jesus Messiah was this way. His mother Mary, being betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, her having a pregnant belly from the Holy Spirit became noticeable. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to shame her, decided he would divorce her quietly. Having resolved to do these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for her child is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You shall call his name Jesus." for he will save his people from their sins. This whole thing occurred so as to be a fulfillment of that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall have a pregnant belly. She shall give birth to a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated is God is with us. Joseph, rising from sleep, did as was commanded to him by the angel of the Lord. He took his wife He was not knowing her up till the time she gave birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. Why is it that in the middle of this story unit, it suddenly says, it's all happened, just after it says that the child in her is from the Holy Spirit, she will give birth to a son, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, it suddenly says, it's all happened. Uh, Hang on, but it it hasn't happened yet. Why why say, it's all happened already, uh, if it it hasn't already happened? Before Mary has given birth, it says, it's all happened? Before Joseph has woken up from sleep? It says, it's all happened. Why does verse 22 speak as though it's already happened? This has puzzled commentators. Doesn't it mean that it will happen? Perhaps we should read it as if it's saying, well, it's about to happen. It will happen very soon. It's starting to happen. It's going to happen. So perhaps we could just change what it says. We just read it. As though, you know, even though it says it's all happened, it it means that it will happen. Another way that we could deal with it 
is to say, well, it's it's the centerpiece, because last time we were looking at the structure, and verse 22 is the middle of the structure, and so it doesn't it doesn't have a counterpart component. It's not paired up with a matching component, so maybe it's just not bound to the same chronology. Maybe it's just a timeless remark that's just floating above the chronology, and, and that's why it doesn't fit with the chronology, perhaps? In this episode, I'd like to show what it's referring to. When verse 22 says, it's all happened, uh, what is it referring to? What what does it mean? Is it perhaps referring to something that has happened, or or is it just, it doesn't make, does it make any sense at all? Uh, what, what are we to do with verse 22? Now, is this really a problem? I've oversimplified it to to make it seem like this is this is a real problem, you know. Um, so the angel is looking forward, and then the narrator in verse twenty two is is in a future time looking back. Basically, most commentators overlook the problem because they they think, well, that's okay that the narrator can suddenly be in the future looking back and saying, well, it did happen eventually. It, it did happen. Um, it's not really too shocking to to have a shift in vantage point. Uh, it's narrated as if we're going back before it's happened, and then it's narrated as, well, we know that it did happen. And so that's not really a big problem. Uh, it's a slightly bigger problem for those commentators who want to think that it's the angel that's narrating both vantage points. Uh, as if it's the angel that keeps speaking in verse 22. Uh, so the angel has just said, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen, and then suddenly says, and it has happened. So for people who think it's the same angelic speech that is happening in verse 22, uh, then that creates a little bit of a problem, and and then that makes us stop and go, well, hang on, why did the angel change vantage points? But for those commentators who say, well, no, this is the narrator's voice, that, that steps in in verse 22, being narrated from the narrator's perspective. So verse 22 says, it has all happened. Uh, this whole thing has happened. That, that's that's not such a jarring jolt because that's that's a different, a different voice. It's not the angel's voice. It's the narrator's voice. Uh, so overall, we could say, look, it's not a huge problem, but it, it still does leave the question of why. Why the sudden shift? The angel says this will happen, and this will happen, and this will happen. Why shift into saying it has happened? So that we're still left with that question. We would still like to know, well, why do we have this shift, and what is it referring to when it says this thing, this whole thing, has happened? Okay, so now is a good time to point out the other part of the problem. The other part of the problem is it does not say these things have happened. It says this thing, this whole thing happened. We've got a shift from a plurality of things to a singularity of things. So 
the angel has said several things that will happen. So Mary will give birth to a son. And you, Joseph, will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So we have three different things happening. But how do we think of them as a single thing? Well, we don't think of them as single things when when, when the angel is saying, and this will happen, and this will happen, uh, as if there are different things that are happening over a, a span of time. So Mary giving birth, and then Joseph naming the child, that's a short span of time. That, but then he will save his people from their sins. That seems to be a wider stretch of time. And then the narrator says this thing, this whole thing. We've got a sudden shift into singular. So we're not supposed to think of a plurality of things. It's not multiple things that will happen anymore. It's suddenly one thing that has happened. This whole thing has happened. Uh, Now, are we supposed to pick one of these things? Well, probably not, uh, because it says this whole thing. So all this, this entire thing. So somehow these things are being spoken of as if they're not several things. They're just one thing. It's just an entire thing. So the second part of the problem is, is really about why do we have the shift into the singular after we've been given them as separate things, this will happen and this will happen because this will eventually happen. And then it says this whole thing in the singular has happened. So not only do we have the shift in perspectives of looking into the future and then suddenly shifting, looking, looking from the future back, but we also have the shift from multiple things that will happen over a over different time spans, and then shifting into seeing them somehow as a singular thing, as a whole entire singular thing. Uh, So, yeah, basically, if it hasn't happened yet, and it's multiple things happening, why do we have, it has happened, and it's one thing? Okay, now it's time to give the solution. And it's quite a a simple, easy solution. Basically, there are three steps, although I don't know whether I should even say three steps because they're they're very easy things to do that they're not really steps at all. (laughs) But but I'll I'll think of them as three steps. So the first step is to trust that perhaps when the text says that something has happened already, it's already happened, that it's it's talking about something that has actually happened already. It's something that's already just been narrated in the story. Uh, rather than trying to make it say something about the future and, and, and read it as if it's trying to say, well, this this will happen, this will eventually happen, but 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 actually just trust that, okay, well, what if it means what it says. That what if we just trust that what it's referring to is something that has just already happened? Uh, and then the next step is something that we, we've already done, and that is to think about, well, what what does it say that, that the thing is? Uh, it says it's a singular thing, uh, 
but it also says it's a whole thing, as if it's got different aspects to it or different parts to it, and 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 all of those parts have 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 happened, and it's 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 now it's a complete whole entire thing. So it's a thing singular thing, and it's it's got different aspects or different parts to it. We've basically already prepared to to do the second step, and we've already looked at okay, it's a singular thing, and it's it's got aspects or parts to it and well it's, it's already happened so the third step is simply to think about this criteria that we've got and look at the verses in between verse 18 and verse 22 everything that happens in the story unit between verses 18 and 22 we go through the different things that have happened and is there something that actually meets this criteria Okay, so here we go. We're looking for something prior to verse 22, so after verse 18 and prior to verse 22, that has happened. It's it's a thing, but it's an entirety. It's it's a whole thing. So here we go. Uh, If we look at verse 18, so after the heading, we have a sentence that is talking about Mary and Joseph's relationship and Mary's pregnancy. Now, if we notice that both of these things are depicted in terms of incompleteness, they're not quite complete. So Mary and Joseph's relationship, uh, in terms of their sexual relationship, that, that isn't something that has happened because it says before they came together. So there's incompleteness in the relationship. Um, so in terms of Mary and Joseph's marriage, and their sexual relationship, there's incompleteness. So that wouldn't fit our criteria because it is a thing, but it hasn't fully completed. It hasn't fully happened. They have not yet come together. And similarly with Mary's pregnancy. So Mary's status as a mother, she's an expecting mother, and but we wouldn't really think of Mary's pregnancy as something that has fully happened it's it hasn't come to a completion uh, until mary has given birth so there's an incompleteness there as well so the first two things that we're being told uh, are characterized by not being complete so we can see that it's it's not referring verse 22 is not referring to this whole relationship or this whole pregnancy because both of those things, we wouldn't think of them as being whole, as being complete. They're they're being characterized or depicted as not quite complete. Now, if we move on to verse 19, we find the same idea of incompleteness. So Joseph is making a plan about what he will do, but he hasn't put anything into action yet. He is intending to do something and or intending not to do certain things. And so there's incompleteness here as well. It's about Joseph planning but but not yet doing. There's in the intention, but there's not the completion of, of anything. So we've got three things now which uh, each of them are characterized or depicted in terms of not being carried through to completion. Now, this is very interesting because the the next thing that is narrated seems to be much more complete because it says, 
having resolved to do these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for the child in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, notice what's happened here. We've suddenly shifted from things not quite being fully complete, uh, nothing nothing was completing, uh, and then we have something that has clearly happened. The angel has appeared to Joseph in a dream with an instruction about not being afraid being afraid to be married to Mary. So that, that's that's the first part of the angel's speech. And then the next part of the angel's speech is a prophecy about the child to be born. So we've got quite a lot that has happened. And in fact, this whole speech of the angel, we could think of this whole speech as an entire thing. So that is something that has happened. So this would seem to fit the bill perfectly. Uh, Except why don't we normally think of this as something that has happened. And I think it's it's to do with our tendency to, to not think of speech as action. Uh, we, we'd like to create a binary between the two where they're, they're completely different things. Although people who study speeches and, and discourse, then they talk about speech acts uh, because, you know, speeches are things that, that do happen. <laughs> and but I think we, we've just forgotten that, oh, the speech that's been delivered to Joseph could be what's being referred to in verse 22. Now, there's still a question left because if we look at there's several things that's just happened. So the angel has appeared in a dream to Joseph. That's something that's happened. Then the angel has delivered an instruction to Joseph, instructing him uh, about uh, you know changing his plan so that he's not going to be divorcing Mary. So instructing him to not be afraid to be married to Mary, and then has delivered a prophecy. Uh, so we've got a few things here. Does it refer to all of these things? Because it says this whole thing, uh, so we, we're supposed to be thinking of it as a, a single uh, whole thing. But we could just, if we if we're looking at what happens next, we could just say, well, it's the prophecy because the prophecy itself includes four things. It's got four elements in the in the prophecy, um, and then it's we're being referred to an older prophecy that are, that is presented in four parts. So with the four part prophecy that's given to Joseph and a four-part prophecy that's that's being quoted as linked together. So we could say that this whole thing just refers to what's immediately happened, which is the prophecy, the prophetic birth announcement. But we could also extend it to include the instruction uh, for Joseph not to be afraid to be married to Mary. Does it include the the instruction just before the prophecy, or is it in, is it just meant to be thinking about of the the birth announcement? This whole 
birth announcement that contains four elements, four parts. Uh, is that what it's referring to? So we've still got this question, which we'll get back to in, in a moment. Uh, but, but for the moment, I'd like to point out that this middle sentence is itself a symmetry with three parts. And the, the first part and the third part are counterbalanced. So we, they're, they're counterparts. So the, the thing that's spoken to Joseph is being balanced with the thing that was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz. And then right in the middle, we have this little expression to be a fulfillment of. So to, to, to be completed, to be filled up, to be filled out. And so we, we're seeing this link being made between the two annunciations, although it could refer to more than just the annunciation. We'll, we'll get back to that in a minute. But what I'd like to point out right at the moment is the three parts are themselves a, a symmetrical structure. So the middle sentence is also symmetrical, so that we find that in the middle of the middle is this word be a fulfillment of. So if we take what we know now about, well, it seems to be referring to something that's just happened, just, just like it says, then if it's referring to what was spoken to Joseph, then we can read the sentence and, and hear the balance between the first and third elements here. So what was spoken to Joseph is a fulfillment of what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. So we can see this nice symmetry here. The thing that was spoken to Joseph, so the divine speech that was given by God through the angel to Joseph, is, is being balanced with the thing that was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Now, something really interesting about this solution is that, well, we already, we already, we already know that, that we're being asked to see the speech given to Joseph, uh, the, the birth prophecy, the announcement of the birth, that announcement given to Joseph. We already know that we're being asked to compare that with the older birth announcement that was given through Isaiah the prophet. So, I mean, that, that's pretty obvious. We, we already knew that. And so there's something about this solution which it, it just seems pretty obvious. But what is perhaps less obvious is what do we do about the bit that's not the prophecy, the bit that the angel said just before the prophecy? Well, isn't that part of the speech? Isn't that part of the divine speech given to Joseph? Why is it only the prophetic part, the birth announcement that seems to be referring to when it says this whole thing? Surely this whole thing would include the whole speech given to Joseph and not just the prophecy, what do we do about the bit just before the prophecy? Uh, namely, the instruction to be married to Mary. So what what do we do with that bit? Uh, that surely isn't that part of this whole thing, this whole speech? And yet the comparison seems to be to compare this, the, the birth prophecy that's given through Isaiah the prophet with the birth prophecy given to Joseph but what about the bit just before the prophecy? Isn't that part of the divine speech that we're supposed to be thinking of the whole thing, the whole speech? Well, what I'd like to 
do is to to, to do what it says, and, th and that is to compare the two, to compare the two corresponding prophecies and to see how our question resolves itself. Uh, so we'll begin by looking at the comparison of the two prophecies uh, as a whole and, and then as uh, the individual elements. What I'd like to do is to compare the two birth announcements, because we're being invited to compare the two, to compare the new Annunciation, the birth Annunciation given to Joseph, with the old birth announcement given through Isaiah the prophet to King Ahaz. And it's worth noticing that the Annunciation that's given to King Ahaz through Isaiah that that is an annunciation being given to a descendant of King David. So King Ahaz is a descendant of King David, just like Joseph is a descendant of King David. So both birth announcements are being given to a descendant of David, a son of David. So if we compare the two, because we're being invited to compare the two, so I'd like to start out by comparing them as a whole and then eventually look at some of the individual elements, so comparing the individual elements. But, but I'd like to start with comparing them as a whole, so how each one functions. And now the, probably the first thing to notice is that the one that's been given to King Ahaz back in the days of Isaiah the prophet, that was quite an ambiguous birth announcement. I mean, it just was a birth announcement that, that came out of nowhere. Um, <laughs> we don't know who the parents are or who the, who the parents are, uh, are supposed to be. Uh, who, so who, who is the child really? The, 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 you know, there's this uh, ambiguous birth announcement where we don't know who, who it is that are the parents. Who, who's, who are the parents of this child? So there's quite a lot of ambiguity. One of the first things to notice is that the old enunciation has a lot of ambiguity and there's a lot of difficulty that, that we could find in, well, we could read it this way, we could read it this way. There's a lot of things that are just not very clear. And it's not even clear whether it's a messianic child. Is it a, is it a son of David that's about to be born? Uh, but then suddenly it becomes much clearer in the case of the, of the enunciation that's given to Joseph. So we're being invited to now interpret the old birth announcement in light of the new birth announcement. But we're not being invited to collapse the two together. So on the one hand, it's not just a matter of, oh, well, there's a few things that are a little bit similar. But on the other hand, we're not being told to, to treat them as if they're the, the same thing, as if it's really just one. There's really only just one birth announcement, one prophecy. But no, we're being asked to compare the two as as distinct prophecies, as distinct birth announcements, but to read one in light of the other. So we're being invited to a, a new way of reading the, the old Annunciation given through Isaiah by reading the new Annunciation given to Joseph.
as a, a, a fuller expression of the old enunciation. So not being completely collapsed into a single thing, but to see how one is is being a fuller expression. So how the new one is filling up or filling out, bringing to a fuller expression things that were potentially there in the old one that, that weren't that wasn't clear uh, or that didn't quite develop. And so it's a, a more fuller expression that we have in the, in the new enunciation. And so what we've been asked to do is a little bit more challenging than just saying, oh, they're the same. So let's begin by comparing the two in terms of their functions as, as a whole. So the function of the new birth announcement that's given to Joseph, uh, and then let's compare that with the function of how the old birth announcement was functioning in the case of Isaiah. Overall, if if we're comparing the functions of these two birth announcements, if we're looking at the one given to Joseph, notice that the one that's given to Joseph is given as a reason to do an instruction. So Joseph has just been given an instruction to follow. And then the the birth announcement is is like a, a supporting reason to follow that instruction. So it's not just, oh, here's an instruction, do it. But here's an instruction, and here's a birth announcement that's to encourage you, to encourage you to be able to do that instruction. So in the case of Joseph, the birth announcement functions in order to encourage Joseph to follow an instruction. And that instruction is about being married to Mary. So it's a marital relationship advice. It's about not being afraid to be married to Mary. Now, notice that something similar is actually happening in the case of the old annunciation, the one that's given through Isaiah the prophet to King Ahaz. Now, in Matthew chapter 1, we don't have the context of the birth announcement. But if we go back to Isaiah chapter 7, then we notice that the birth announcement that's given there is also given as the supporting reason to follow an instruction. So King Ahaz was given an instruction which was about not following through a plan. So the king was planning to do something. So this is interesting because both cases we've got, not only are they given as an instruction to, to uh, so in the case of Joseph, given an instruction to, to not be afraid to be married to Mary, um, and then supported by a birth announcement. Well, similarly, we see in the case of King Ahaz, he was he was just told an instruction to not go through with a plan and then given a birth announcement to encourage him to do that instruction. So not only are they both given as the supporting reason to follow an instruction, but both instructions were about not carrying out the plan that the recipient was was about to do. So in the case of King Ahaz, it was 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 no don't don't carry out the plans that that you were that you were doing because King Ahaz was was about to make an alliance with Assyria, so he's planning to make an alliance 
with Assyria because he thinks the northern kingdom is about to invade. And the message is, no, no, that's don't, don't do that. So this is very interesting, that both annunciations function as an encouragement to be able to follow an instruction, and both instructions were about not carrying out a particular plan that the recipient was about to carry out. So we can notice here that one of the aspects that's being filled up or filled out in the case of Joseph, the, the, the enunciation given to Joseph, is that there is an improvement that's that's going on because Joseph, as, as a descendant of King David uh, and King Ahaz, so both recipients are being given similar instructions and with being backed up by a prophecy of a, of a birth of an important child to encourage them to do that instruction. And we can see that there is an improvement. Uh, something seems to be working a little bit more efficiently, a little bit better in the case of Joseph. Joseph is an improvement in the, of the way that he is a recipient, uh, a, a, a receptive recipient. So we've got a greater expression of, of uh of clarity here, not just in terms of clarity of oh, well, the old the old enunciation was very ambiguous, but we have Joseph is ready and willing to receive the message, whereas in the case of King Ahaz, he wasn't he wasn't interested in following the instruction, he's not interested in being encouraged with a birth announcement, uh, so he's not very receptive to the <laughs> the message, uh, uh, he's not. He's not interested in being encouraged to follow the instruction, whereas Joseph is quite receptive. Uh, he is ready and willing to be encouraged uh, to listen and, and to put into action the instructions that he, that he is given. So he is being encouraged by the birth announcement. So in the case of Joseph, it is working to to a to a much greater degree than we saw the first time round back in the days of Isaiah with King Ahaz. Uh, and this is showing us that in terms of ancestry, there is something here that is, is improving or being rectified in the case of Joseph. So there's some deficiencies in Joseph's ancestry. And, and when we get to Joseph, we can see that, well, the birth announcement is functioning in a new improved way in the case of Joseph. So it's uh, not just clearer in terms of who's who's it talking about, like um, We've got a much clearer birth announcement. We, we know more about, about the child in particular and, and the child's parents. Uh, it's, it's, it's much clearer here, but it's also a more fuller expression of how to be encouraged. So Joseph is being encouraged by the birth announcement. Uh, so Joseph wants to be involved in, in the life of this child. He is wanting to follow the instruction. So one way we can compare the two well, this is this is one way that we can make sense of the old one. Is we can see, we can read it in light of the new one. So the old one can definitely have meaning in its own right, uh, and it could be read in different ways. Uh, but when we get to Matthew chapter one, we're being encouraged to see how the two compare. Uh, and now, so if we're comparing them in terms of how they function, then yes, we can see that, that they do do function similarly, uh, and that the new one. Is is filling up and filling out some of the the unfulfilled potential in in how the older one was 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 functioning back in the days of Isaiah.
Okay, so now I would like to compare the individual elements of the two birth announcements. They both have four parts, four elements, uh, and we can see that they both uh, are intended to to have the same four, the same matching elements in, in each case. So the first part is about noticing something about the pregnancy that, that, that the child hasn't yet been born, but this is this is something to take notice of. This is an important birth. It's, that's, it's going to be an important birth for the nation. Uh, and the second part is that the mother will give birth to a son. And the third part is the name given to that son. And the fourth part is about the significance of that name. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the, the third and fourth elements because, the, well, the second element is is word for word. <laughs> she will give birth to a son. That's word for word in, in both cases. So there's not a lot of comparison to really, to really do there. Uh, but the first element, there's been a lot of work that's already been done about, okay, well, how can we compare the, the two beginnings? So for the child in her is from the Holy Spirit, we can compare that to, behold, the virgin will have a pregnant belly. And there's, there's already been a lot of comparisons made there about, oh, okay, so we're being encouraged to think of, well, this is also applicable to Mary. So uh, this is how we can think of, of Mary's situation. It's like it's like the situation that was spoken of in, in Isaiah. So we think of Mary as the virgin. and So there's a lot of work that's already been done on, on the first element. So what I'd like to talk uh, about here is correspondences between the third elements and the fourth elements in the two birth prophecies. So in the case of the two names, now the third element has a different name in each case. So in the case of the name that's that's given in the announcement to Joseph, the name is Jesus. Uh, but the name is Emmanuel in the case of Isaiah. The one given through Isaiah to King Ahaz is the name Emmanuel. Now, some people might think, oh, uh-oh, um, that's a bit awkward. It's a different name. So uh, why why isn't Jesus given the same name? Like, Shouldn't Jesus be given the name Emmanuel? Well, it's not necessarily uh, something uncomfortable, <laughs> something awkward, uh, because... The way that it's written in Matthew is that it says they will call him Emmanuel, which is really emphasizing the communal nature of the name. So it doesn't need to be a clash of birth names. So, I mean, even if it was a birth name in the case of Isaiah's time, Matthew's emphasizing they will call him to, to be able to, to deal with, with thinking of these. These are two different names. How would Emmanuel apply in the case of Jesus if Jesus isn't called Emmanuel? The text that we have in Matthew is is quoting it as they will call him, which is emphasizing the communal nature of the name, which is picking up this connection between the child and the community. And so that's something that is applicable in the case of Jesus because so God being with us is the way that people would, would think uh, of of Jesus in in later generations.
Okay, so this brings us to the fourth element in each case. What what do the names mean? Because the names aren't obviously identical, and the meanings of the names aren't identical either. But there is a lot of similarity with the meanings of the names as as well, because in the case of Emmanuel, which translated means God is with us, in that case, the people who call the child Emmanuel are saying something theological. They're making a theological statement about the situation, the, the, the times that they're living in, then they can see that, that God is still at work. God is still there. God is still present. Um, they can identify God at work. God at work amongst them. So God is amongst us. The, it, God is is working. Is God is active uh, among us. This is what the, the name is supposed to be reflecting in the case of Emmanuel. It's reflecting the people's belief in the, in the activity of God uh, and the closeness of God. Uh, that God is working in the situation, uh, and people can detect that. Uh, people know and feel the presence of God. Now, of course, that's that's also very applicable in in the life of Jesus, because people who followed Jesus, they would also say the same kind of things about. God being present in the life of Jesus. Uh, now, what's interesting is that the meaning of the name Jesus that's given in the fourth element to Joseph, the meaning of the name Jesus, it, it, it does have some similar aspects to the, the name Emmanuel. Because when it says, uh, uh, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, in Greek, Jesus doesn't doesn't have a meaning because it's a Hebrew name. Uh, so it, it might sound like it says Jesus will save Jesus's people. Uh, you know, he will save his people. It might sound like the pronoun he is referring to Jesus. Uh, well, if you don't know any Hebrew, then uh, then that's that's what it would sound like. But as soon as you know a little bit of Hebrew, uh, and then you, you know that. That there are many Hebrew names that uh, include an element of God's name in the name. So, in the case of Jesus, uh, well, Jesus is an anglicized version of Jesus. Uh, so, um, Jesus is is the Greek, but the Greek doesn't have a have a have a have a meaning in Greek because uh, it's a Hebrew name. Uh, so, the Hebrew name is Yehoshua. So Yehoshua begins with Yeh, and Yeh is, is an element of the divine name. So anyone who knows some Hebrew would know that when it says he will save, the he is supposed to be uh, referring to God. Uh, it's the divine name of God. So the pronoun is, is referring to God will save. But the way that it's written in Matthew uh, it's ambiguous as to, well, is it is it referring to God saving? Because it sounds like it's referring to Jesus doing the saving. Well, so who, who's doing the saving? Uh, is it Jesus or is it God? Uh, whose people? Is it Jesus' people or is it God's people? Well, it's deliberately ambiguous because uh, it's not like we need to choose between these two things as if they're 
as if they're conflicting things. There, so there is an overlap here between, well, who's doing the work? Who's doing the saving? Uh, who, who's people? Well, it's both. It's God and, and it's Jesus. So we can see that this is an ambiguity that's deliberately left as ambiguous so that you can read it one way or you can read it the other way, but, you're, but we're encouraged to think of it as both ways. Uh, so notice how both of these explanations of the names, uh, so the name Jesus and the name Emmanuel, they both have meanings that are to do with this overlap of the divine and the human uh, operating together. Is it God operating is it, or is it humans operating? Who, who, who is the activity referring to? In the case of Jesus, it's ambiguous. It seems to be both. In the case of Emmanuel, we can also see that that it's a recognition of God's activity among the people. So what's happening is not just people doing things, uh, but it's God doing things. So this divine human interaction or cooperation. So the name Emmanuel is about God working together in the people and among the people to to see in both cases. Uh, so sometimes we tend to have an, uh, a tendency to to make an either or to make it a binary. Well, is it God doing it? You know, God's just going to intervene miraculously, uh, or is it humans? It's all is it up to humans. You know, where's God? Like, but but that's not something that we find. This kind of binary thinking. It's not really what we're finding. In Matthew chapter one, we're finding this this ambiguous inter interconnection, this merging of the human and the divine. That that it's a cooperative, collaborative kind of activity where people can recognize activity as being human and divine. Okay, so I'm about to give some conclusions, and there's still a few things that I'd like to to point out that are a little bit like conclusions, and they head us into the conclusions. Anyway, here we here we go. I'm going to talk about the different kinds of completeness that this story unit has in it. Uh, now, last time in episode seven a, uh, I was talking about the structural interdependence, so the the structural completeness. That the first component was tied to the final component, and the second component in was tied to the second component from the end. The third with the third, and the fourth with the fourth, and the fifth with the fifth. So we had a series of components that were all tied together that were paired up, and so we could see that the the, the second lot of components at the end were all completing the idea. Uh, they had the same elements in each each of the sentences, and the ideas were being completed. So that, that's a certain kind of completeness that we saw last time structurally in in the um, in the concentric structure. Now this time I've been talking about the center of this concentric structure, which has also got us talking about the fifth component just before the center, and the. And the the next component just after the center, so the the double 
birth announcement or, or the birth prophecy. So they're both prophetic speeches prophesying the birth of, of, of a child. Uh, and so in order to study this this component in the middle, we we really had to also study either side of it, what was the component just before it that it's referring to, and what's the component just after it that it's referring to. So verse 22 is nested within the centre uh, of, of this story unit, and so we, were had to, we had to look at what was the divine speech just before verse 22, and what's the divine speech just after 22, if we wanted to study what is verse 22 talking about. Okay, so now I'd like to talk about the different kinds of completeness we saw this episode when we were studying verse 22. And uh, we saw a variety of different layers or aspects uh, of completeness. So one kind that we saw was that the identification of the child to be born is much clearer in the speech given to Joseph. Uh, we get a more complete portrait or a more complete picture, uh, a fuller picture of who is who's being addressed, uh, who, who are the child's parents. We get a much clearer picture. So that's one kind of completeness that we, we saw. Another kind of completeness is that the speech that's given to Joseph, the divine prophetic speech, well, that completes the instruction that's just come just before it. So the, the, the prophecy is completing an instruction. And in fact, we found that there was a similar pattern back in the book of Isaiah, where what's being quoted in Matthew chapter 1, that was originally part of, of a similar thing, where the, the divine speech was continuing or, or, uh, or finishing or completing an instruction. It was coming as the support for an instruction. So both speeches were about completing an instruction. Um, another kind of completeness is that we saw that Joseph is a much more receptive kind of recipient compared to the first time round, where the recipient wasn't very receptive. King Ahaz wasn't interested in being uh, receptive, uh, so but Joseph is. So we saw a more completedness happening where Joseph is uh, a, a more receptive recipient. Another kind of completeness is that the speech is specifically labelled as completed speech. Um, so it, it's using the vocabulary of be a fulfilment of, or fill up, or fill out. So it's using the language of completeness. Another kind of completeness is that I think this would be the fifth, the fifth kind. Uh, although there could be more than this, these are the ones that I've catalogued. The fifth kind is that the thought of what was was spoken in the older prophetic speech that that thought is being completed. It's it's not just a brand new speech given to Joseph that that just comes out of nowhere. It's not just completely out of the blue, never been heard before. But there's a consistency of, well, this is this is the sort of thing that, that God has said in the past. God has said something similar in the past, and, and how it is said is also similar, and how it functions is also similar. So there's a consistency in the thought that's being continued or completed. 
A sixth kind of completion is that it brings about the the change in terms of the story plot that we have. It's the pivotal moment where things change. So the things go from being unresolved into transitions into the direction of being resolved. Well, what is the transition? The transitional moment is all about the divine speech. So the divine speech is what brings about the shift uh, in order to help things come together. So there are various factors, human and divine factors, that do end up coming together, and it's the divine speech which brings about the shift. That's what transforms or changes or completes the the story. Everything pivots around this this part. So it's the pivotal moment that that completes or or, or shifts the story into the mode of completion. Uh, in other words, we have fer- various factors which seem to be in tension with, with, with each other, but it completes the bringing together of these various factors. It's the divine speech that brings it all together. Now, the seventh kind of completeness is that structurally it's, it's in the center. It, it completes the structure. So it is a completed structure by having a center. I mean, it didn't need to have a center. Uh, but verse 22 is the center, um, and it has a center. So verse 22 has its own center within that component, and that center of the center is the word complete. Uh, so it's not just labeled as complete, and it's not just that it, it completes the, the plot in terms of it, it shifts, it pivots the, the story into uh, um, a direction of completion, but it, it it is itself structurally in the middle of the middle. It is the centerpiece of the story unit. Now it's time to give a conclusion. And it's difficult to give a conclusion that's separate from the, the previous episode, episode 7a, because both 7a and 7b have been looking at the structure. And originally, these two episodes uh, were going to come out as a single episode, and I was going to talk about both. Uh, how does the, the heading fit? How does that connect with everything, all the other components? And how does verse 22 fit? How does that connect with all the other components? And I was going to keep it all in one episode. And the conclusions were all very based around the structural patterns that were being observed. And so it's difficult this time to give conclusions that that sounds like brand new, because some of the conclusions are the same kind of conclusions that I gave last time about this close interdependence between the form and the meaning. So the structure and the semantics. So how, what, what does it mean? Well, how is it structured? So how do we know what it means? Well, the structure is helping to tell us what it means because the meaning isn't separate from the structure. The meaning is built into the structure. So this time we've got a similar set of conclusions. Uh, so yeah, so there's going to be a little bit of an overlap between the, the kind of conclusions in this episode to episode 7a. Uh, okay, so um, yeah, so like last time in, in 7a, we saw this interdependence between the form and the function. The, 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 me- the meaning of the text is tied closely into the structure. We can't just expect to get to the meaning by ignoring the structure. So we study the structure 
And simultaneously, we are studying the meaning. We are getting to the meaning by studying the structure. So one of the things that we that, that keeps popping up in this story, this story unit, is that thematically and structurally, we've got a divine-human overlap. So we've got this combination of human and divine factors at work. As we have various factors coming together to make Jesus the heir of Joseph, which we talked about last time, and, and Joseph is cooperating, the Holy Spirit is one of the factors, um, the public opinion is one of the factors, um, and the scripture is there as one of the factors. So we, we had various things last time that we saw that were cooperating together. To There were human factors and divine factors. Well, similarly, this time, we see that the naming that, that's given here, uh, where in the speech given to Joseph is Jesus, uh, and the speech that's being quoted, that, that name was Emmanuel. And how both names were about a human divine cooperation. So in the name Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. It sounds like Jesus is doing it. But the more we think about it and look into it, we realize, oh, well, it's God doing it. It's it's deliberately ambiguous as, well, is Jesus doing it or is God doing it? Well, yes and yes. It's, it's a deliberate converging of the human and the divine. Also, we saw it in the name Emmanuel as well. So God is together with the people. God is working with the people, and the, the person's name bears this combination. So Emmanuel is a theological statement that bears testimony to this human-divine cooperation. So we would be encouraged to see the similarities between the names Jesus and Emmanuel and the significance of these two names. We're being expected or invited to notice the similarities there. And so that's something similar that we saw with the previous episode in episode 7a. We've got this human-divine cooperation that we saw with Joseph. Was it Joseph that is giving Jesus the messianic status? It's about the progeneration of the messiahship. So the giving of the title, the Messiah, son of David, and it's Joseph who's responsible, but it, but it's not Joseph's agenda, it's, it's a divine agenda. So similarly, this time, we see in the meaning of the names. Is Jesus saving or is God saving? And who is Emmanuel? Well, God is recognizably there in and amongst the people. Uh, so everywhere that we look in this literary unit, we find interdependence and things that are tied into each other, that we've got this idea of human-divine overlap and cooperation all the way through this unit, uh, thematically, structurally, and similarly with the idea of completion. We have things that are being completed in the third part of the story that are being tied into the first part of the story, and then the middle part of the story is about completion. So the third part of the story was about completion, but it was about things being completed, um, being shown to be complete. It was depicted as being things were being complete. So the th- three issues at the start are about Mary and Joseph's union. So the relationship between Mary and Joseph was incomplete. It was not. It was not complete. Uh, Mary's pregnancy was not complete. 
and Joseph's plans were not yet complete. They weren't yet put into action. And we find the resolution of these three things is resolved. It's depicted as being resolved, but we don't find the language of completion. But in the middle, we find the language of completion, and that is being applied to divine speech. The the short conclusion for this entire episode is it's what I find most interesting and clever of all, and that is that what it is that is filling up or filling out or is a fulfillment of the prophecy, the older prophecy about the child in Isaiah, well, it's another prophecy. This is just brilliant. This is such a delightful and stimulating thing that, that we've got here. What it is that fills out the prophecy, well, it's another prophecy. It's a prophecy that helps fill out an older prophecy. And that's what verse 22 is saying. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. 